Hello and welcome to another edition of the Hypocritical Podcast. I'm your host, Olena Hugh, and joining me this week is Rick Kuahara, Chief Marketing Officer. Hey, Olena. Great to be here again. And we've got a lot to cover. You know, a lot of people have been very concerned when it comes to coronavirus or COVID-19. And you've seen some incidents in the news as well. Yeah, one of the fallouts from the coronavirus has been a cancellation of a lot of um, big conferences this year. And um, it's all over, happening all over the U.S. Um, And, you know, it's not something that, in the big picture is that big a deal, but you know it does affect a lot of um, a lot of people. So, Hims twenty twenty. Um, so Hims conference is one of the largest. It's probably the biggest healthcare conference of the year. Um, was canceled at the last minute on Thursday, and it was supposed to start on um, March 9th. So um, a lot of uh, sponsors were pulling out ahead of time, um, and they felt. Uh, with their medical advisors that they put together that it was in the best interest um, for public safety just to not have the conference because, you know, thousands of people do actually attend that conference. Um, They fly into Orlando and, you know, it's a real big deal. Um, We always have, you know, our our presence there as well. Um, So it's a last minute curveball. And, you know, as of now, there's like no refunds for anything. So it's a sunk cost for a lot of people. Um, even for us, just, you know, for flights, hotels, the tickets, um, some minor costs. I know it's bigger for people who have sponsored and mm-hmm. it doesn't look like they're trying to reschedule it either. So it's a real, um, it's a side effect of uh, the coronavirus. And again, not that big a deal in the big picture of things, but, you know, this does, uh, it will actually have um, eventual economic impact. That's what a lot of people are saying. A lot of these large conferences, tourism, you know, a lot of the um, travel industry is really becoming affected and that affects the local economies wherever, you know, these conferences are going to be held. So it's a, it's something to keep an eye on for sure. Definitely. You know, we're seeing across the globe, uh, major international conferences and gatherings are being canceled. And, you know, a lot of people in terms of, you know, people in Japan uh, being told to stay home. And so a lot of events with Japan or Japanese visitors, um, those being canceled and and even the president avoiding certain areas because people are testing positive or, you know, one person at the CDC is positive with COVID-19. And then, so it's just a lot going on. Uh, A lot of people erring on the side of caution. And it's good that you bring up the impact to tourism and the economy as well. Yeah. It's something um, I know at Powbox, you know, we're being very um, careful now as far as making sure that, you know, we're, watching our expenses if there is a downturn in the economy. Um, just got to be, you know, prepared for worst case scenario, you know, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. It's funny too, because I'm starting to notice that there are special rates at hotels and, you know, people are trying to attract uh, customers yeah. to come in and, and eat the buffet or come and stay for the weekend. And so at the same time that all of this is happening, I'm also thinking this is kind of a good thing uh, where, you know, if you do want to travel, you might get really good rates. Or if you do want to experience something that you haven't experienced, then maybe now is the opportunity, just as a sidebar. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, cover that a little bit in the predictions. Um, but even um, like Alaska Airlines, I just got a an email not too long ago. They're trying to, um, you know, reassure people that it's okay to travel to certain places. And I don't know how uh, genuine that is. <laughs> you know, they're trying to, you know, min- minimize the effect on their business. But um, yeah, well, I mean, it's something to keep an eye on. And, you know, I think, you know, by the summer we'll cover it in predictions, but, you know, hopefully that, you know, we'll have get past a lot of the, um, this phase of, you know, uh, rapid spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm optimistic as well. I heard, uh, I think it's somewhat of a, a old wives tale or something, but they said the virus doesn't like tropical hot climates. <laughs> Someone said that to me the other night and I was like, really? That doesn't make any sense at all. Definitely. We'll talk about that in the predictions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And so coming up, uh, you know, we like to talk about what's in the news. And so we talked about a big event being canceled, but we've got on our blog, the HIPAA breach report for March, 2020. And what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So we always look back at the previous month. So in this report, we're looking at what happened in February and, you know, Laptop breaches ranked first for um, again this year um, with over 650,000 people affected um, and email breaches were second with almost 500,000 people breached Um, and network servers uh, came in third. So typically that's like a hack on a server that got 64,000. So huge drop off. And we know email is always the number one threat vector. with a number of attacks, it's just the size of the attacks, uh, laptop um, breach breaches were big for this month. Um, and in all, you know, just everything combined, it was a crazy month with over 1.2 million people having their PHI compromised. Uh, really, it tripled the January number. Um, so even though um, laptop breaches had the most people affected, uh, email had 17 reported breaches versus just two for laptops, but the, the laptop breaches were huge. Um, the biggest one being um, uh, was caused by um, the health share of Oregon where they had a breach where a laptop was stolen. And, you know, that um, was really the bulk of the 650,000 um, people who were affected. Interesting. And so does an iPad is that noted as a laptop or that's a different device? No, yeah, they call that a mobile. I mean, laptops, uh, handhelds are all combined together as mobile devices, but in mm-hmm. this case, it's, uh, it was a laptop that was stolen. Okay. And so, what do you think this means moving forward? I think for sure, we all just got to, um, it, it shows like people have to, um, make sure that their laptops and equipment are encrypted and secure. So even if it is stolen, you know, people can't get into it and uh, have some way to remotely wipe the laptop um, if it is lost or stolen as well, because that adds just another layer of security. So this could have been prevented if those two safeguards were in place. So even if a laptop was stolen, one a uh, hacker would have a difficult time getting in because the hard drive would be encrypted. And two, as soon as they found out, they could have remotely wiped it, prevented anything from happening. 
and that kind of software is it already installed in a laptop when you purchase it uh no i mean you gotta um well the encryption part is for some computers um a lot of them have a way to encrypt the hard drive just natively but you need to have some sort of uh third party like for powbox we use jamf um which allows us to again you know if a device is stolen or lost that we can wipe the hard drive of the computer okay all right anything else in the news that you wanted to highlight as well yeah another uh pretty big deal uh this report came out um from verizon uh, it was the verizon's 2020 mobile security index and pretty alarming it showed that two-fifths of healthcare organizations faced a mobile device compromise last year so again mobile devices could be cell phones uh, ipads or even laptops just anything that can be that's considered mobile and actually 38 percent of healthcare respondents said that they um face compromise and which was a significant increase from the previous year which was 25 percent and the issue with this is that a lot of healthcare organizations just are basically ignoring mobile security for the sake of efficiency um, increasing the risk that something could happen like you know this stolen laptop for example right is a if you have a big organization it's hard to kind of um, know where are you know how many devices are out there who has them are they encrypted you know it takes a lot of um, oversight and rather than have that complication um, a lot of people just uh, ignore it and this this study showed that about 37 percent of healthcare organizations are actually not fully prepared when it comes to mobile security um, beyond the hard drives is things like um, making sure that uh, people don't go uh, on insecure Wi-Fi hotspots where, you know, there's a lot of Wi-Fi snooping and uh, things that can happen uh, that way. And even monitoring the type of apps that are being used. Mm-hmm. So if you have a phone um, and you download a chat device or something, a chat app or something, you know, is it is it being used for work where there's PHI that's being involved? You know, a lot of um, organizations just aren't keeping track. So, you know, when you're at the mall and you want to utilize their Wi-Fi and you go to log on and it tells you it's unsecure, what should you do at that point? Yeah, don't do anything that would require uh, that that may have uh, sensitive data. Like, it's better not to go on it mm. because um, if you have a laptop, for example, that has sensitive information on it, and you're on an unsecure um, Wi-Fi network, it's pretty, you'd be surprised how easy it is for a hacker to just get on. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily have to be the most technical people either. There are kits and things that uh, make it, uh, unfortunately, pretty easy to do. Um, so definitely if you're not on a secure Wi-Fi um, network, don't use it for anything especially uh, if you have a device that um, has sensitive information on it. You don't want to do anything that could um, compromise that. So who would you say is the most at risk in regards to this particular subject? Well, definitely for um, these uh, healthcare organizations and the larger ones, it's definitely the employees, um, especially the more remote ones. 
you know, as um, you know, when there is a mobile device that is um, being used like a laptop, again, it can be considered a mobile device when it's being used for work and there's PHI on it and it's being used remotely that extends what's called the endpoints of the security of the network. And it definitely makes it more vulnerable. So employees, uh, especially remote employees are definitely the largest vulnerability in healthcare is that human factor. Um, And, you know, the the way to do it um, to kind of address that is just training, training and more training (laughs) along with, um, you know, getting the right systems and programs in place. Like we had talked about before being able to remotely wipe hard drives. Um, It's a combination of both. You know, you you can't rely a hundred percent on the technical part. Um, You definitely still need to be training employees and keeping them up to date. Well, thank you for keeping us informed on the latest news headlines. Uh, Now, we also like to focus on those who are winning and failing. So let's start with the good news first. Okay, Providence St. Joseph's Health is definitely a winner. There's a great article recently about how they are trying to use um, analytics and automation to really get the right conversation starting for patients to get the best outcomes. And how Providence St. Joseph Health is doing that is by having conversations started with people about their end of life choices, which is really a tough place to, you know, it's a, kind of a tough conversation to have. Um, but starting discussion early really does mean that it can set up people to have the best care possible when they do reach, you know, that their end of life uh, stage. So how they're doing this with analytics and data is they can actually look at their medical system, identify people who are kind of approaching this time of life where they should be preparing. Um, So for example, people who are over 65, um, they don't have any advanced directives on file. You know, they can pull that segment out and then send them personalized videos and email to educate them on the importance of, you know, setting up directives and help start that conversation of um, planning, you know, their end of life care. So Dr. Matthew Gonzalez, the chief medical information officer um, at Providence St. Joseph health, he says that um, these practices are working. So the rates of email open and the videos watched suggest that this new method of engagement using patient data is catching on where they see an increase of people who watch the videos, an increase of people who start um, advanced care directives. So it's really important to show how, you know, how much room there is for healthcare organizations to focus on people-centered care by using their patient data. And this type of personalization and care, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be through something complex like videos, you know, you know, we've launched Project Orca, which is allows people to send PHI and use their data to send out these type of marketing emails and engage their patients. And in the end, you know, that really helps the patients get involved in their care and it can help the health outcomes for everyone. Definitely. And they just need to be made aware. Um, you know, you do have to think about the future. Right. Yeah. And that's just one use case. So lots of ways that you can do that. So it's great to see how, you know, they're using it, they're using their patient data and it's a good um, example of what 
other people can do. Mm -hmm, definitely. All right. Well, we just focused on someone that's winning. Now we're going to head over to the failures. What you got? Well, unfortunately, there's always a lot of these to choose from. So, <laughs> but we pulled out a couple of examples that I think might be um, relevant for people. I mean, a big one was Walgreens. You know, it seems like they always, they're always having problems. Um, so they recently reported a data breach from their personal mobile messaging app that there was an error that allowed uh, personal messages to be viewed by other customers. So if you can imagine, you know, you're, you have personal messages on the Walgreens app that could be about your cares, your subscriptions, prescriptions, excuse me. Um, and that can be viewed by, that was able to be viewed by other customers. So Unreal. the exposed data, I think this happened earlier in January and the exposed data included customer names, prescription numbers, drug names. They don't really know right now how many people were impacted by the security incident, which in is of itself is not very good. They, you know, hopefully they would have a number by now, but um, to give you an idea, you know, that Walgreens app is downloaded over 10 million times on the Google play store alone. Unbelievable. That's huge. And it, yeah. And it, it walks a fine line between, you know, what's covered by HIPAA and what's not because the app itself might actually not fall under HIPAA because it's a, it's a consumer app. It's not, um, Walgreens is not necessarily providing care. So there's this gray area now um, that's coming up between privacy, you know, what is HIPAA covered data? When does it change? Because the data itself might be the same, right? It's still your prescription information, but just because it's on Walgreens app makes it not PHI versus if it was for your hospital giving it to you, then it is PHI. So there's a lot of room for improvement um, in clarifying who's responsible for this, you know, and this privacy. That's very well said. I'll just leave that right there. <laughs> you, <laughs> you said it perfectly. Uh, who else is failing this week? Well, another one um, is, uh, you know, we hear about ransomware all the time. Uh, this time, the Maze ransomware hack, um, was used to hack and affect a f accounting firm. So the accounting firm, uh, BST, they were affected by uh, malware um, that actually compromised patient data from a physician's group, one of their, uh, their clients. So the accounting firm was the one who fell victim to a ransomware attack, yet because they did have um, personal health information you know, that they did access, with this healthcare client, uh, it actually did affect a lot of people's uh, a lot of people's personal health information became compromised, as well as their financial data. So, like names, date of births, um, medical record numbers, uh, a lot of that was affected, and it kind of shows how wide the breadth of HIPAA, the HIPAA industry is. You know, this is a accounting firm was handling PHI on behalf of their, um, you know, their, 
client. Client. Mm -hmm. So this just goes to show the you know how wide and the breadth of the HIPAA industry is, and the amount of people who are touching, you know, uh, PHI is more than just the healthcare organizations. It's everyone. You know, I mean, it's a well, not everyone, but it's a lot of people. Um, and if you are, you know, handling patient data, it goes to show just how you have to care for it and really make sure that it's secure and take the steps necessary to protect that data. Correct. And it almost seems like people aren't aware of the sensitive nature. So even though, you know, you may be an accounting firm, you have clients that have specific data that if it's compromised, you know, could have major ramifications. So a lot to learn and to continue to learn from. So this week, Rick was able to sit down with Kelvin Coleman, Executive Director of the National Cybersecurity Alliance. They discussed the human element of cybersecurity and how the industry has evolved and where it's heading. Okay, so Kelvin, we, we chatted a bit before about the RSA panel that you have on human behavior. And you had a great point about you know, how human behavior is a glaring weakness for organizations. You know, why is it so difficult to tighten up that human threat factor? Rick, I, I think for two primary reasons. One is um, I, I've always thought the human piece, right, isn't as exciting or sexy as other parts of the technology ecosystem. And what I mean by that, I generally break the technology ecosystem down to three parts, right? Products, processes, and people. Um, we're very excited about new products that come out and shiny toys that we can implement, uh, you know, and, and, and that's proper, right? We, we have to develop these great products to help us out and processes, of course. I mean, you and I both know of some people who get very excited when it comes to processes. Uh, we're talking about recovery um, uh, of data or, you know, processes to help mitigating those challenges. Those things are very exciting. The people part of it, uh, maybe not as exciting. And so you don't have as many resources going towards uh, people. And, and we do know upwards of 80, 85% of breaches come through some human era, right? Some human action that resulted in that. Yet, you know, according to Proofpoint and, and others, you know, probably around 15% or so of uh, you know, training and awareness uh, budgets go towards uh, the human being, the actual person, that seems to be out of proportion there. And I think, as we've talked about before, more needs to go into um, you know, human training, just actually training your employees. Uh, now, that's one reason. The other reason, I think, why um, you know, we haven't seen more, uh, why it's been so difficult to tighten up the human threat factor is because human beings, right? We're, we're somewhat unpredictable. Uh, the products, the processes, we kind of know where they're going to go and how they're going to do things. But human beings, we're very curious, right? Um, sometimes we want to see what's on the other side of that link, not out of a you know, malicious intent or anything of that nature, just curious. Um, and so until we're able to also dial that back a bit, right? <laughs> and tell people, well, back in the day, being curious would probably get you something interesting to see uh, being curious today could cripple your organization. Um, and so I think those two factors in terms of just working and training around people, maybe not as exciting as products and processes. And again, the second one, we're just curious as a species. We want to know kind of, uh, you know, what's on the other side of that link. 
Right. Great point. And, you know, another thing um, that we kind of talk about is how the, the big hacks on big companies are what makes news headlines. Uh, but I know small business is a main focal point for um, NCSA. You know, what areas do most small businesses need the most help with? Uh, two areas. Uh, one is just understanding the urgency of, uh, of them, of the small business, uh, addressing this issue. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is sometimes they don't even realize that it's just as important for them to uh, protect, secure their system, their network, than it is for the Fortune 500. Um, and, and many times, and you've heard this, Rick, where they'll say, well, you know, my business isn't that big and, you know, we're not that important. I don't think a bad actor would come after us. Well, you hold PII, right? Personally identifiable information on your customers and you hold uh, financial records, you hold, uh, you know, other vital information that bad actors can use. You are just as valuable of a target. In fact, maybe more uh, target rich for bad actors because you don't have the robust system up that you need. And so uh, one is just helping them to see that urgency. Uh, the other uh, thing that we have to help small businesses with the most is identifying the right resources to help them deal with the challenges, right? Um, what will work for a Fortune 500 may not necessarily work for a small and medium-sized business. And we need to uh, help them to identify the proper resources uh, to, again, help mitigate that challenge. Now, uh, some of the resources, not all, but there are some very low-hanging fruit resources that they can take advantage of. And we make sure they understand that, too, that this does not have to break the bank at all. Uh, but there is some wisdom to, uh, you know, a, a ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure type of thing. And so we try to encourage these businesses to look at the NIST uh, framework, right? Identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. Uh, just start there. Those five very simple steps. Uh, you know, you don't have to be overly technical to look at your system and say, what assets do I have? What information do I have in my uh, network for my customers? And then you can go from there in terms of how to protect that. So the urgency is one thing, helping them to see the urgency of, of protecting their information. And by the way, they're not, you know, I'm not saying they're callous or they're not serious about it at all. I think sometimes they just think they're not important enough for the bad actors to come after. And we have them to understand that they are. So that urgency is certainly one part we help them with. And identifying resources is the other part we help them with. So those are the two biggest problems that we deal with as it relates to small businesses. That's a great point, especially how you say, you know, they don't think they're important enough, but, you know, we're seeing more and more, you know, that, you know, hackers or cyber criminals really are going after the small medium because they know they're not ready. Um, That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and we know the majority of businesses are small and medium-sized businesses. And so why wouldn't a bad actor go after uh, uh, these folks? So, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Right. And you just completed a successful data privacy day a few weeks ago. And in healthcare, there's a big push towards helping consumers take uh, access and take control of their health outcomes. But, you know, that always brings up concerns over security and privacy. You know, how difficult is that balance between innovation and privacy? You know, Rick, not as difficult as one would think. 
Um, and I say that because we have to give privacy and security, for that matter, consideration on the front end of innovation. Um, it's much easier to build it in in the beginning than to than to try to unbake the cake in the end. Um, and, and so when people talk about the difficulty of privacy as it relates to innovation and slows down innovation, I don't think so. I, I take the opposite view, in fact. I think it can actually help to, um, you know, uh, speed it up responsibly uh, because you know you have security and privacy baked in and you, you know you, you don't necessarily have to again go back and try to undo those things because it, it's just so much simpler to be able to say in the beginning hey these pieces are already there as opposed to in you know when you get down the road a bit and someone points it out now you're trying to make it fit um, into your scheme or, or into that particular uh, enterprise and it just won't work as well and so for me, how difficult is it to balance innovation and privacy? If done in the beginning, not as difficult as, as you would think. Again, you know, much easier uh, to do it on, uh, at the uh, onset uh, than it is down the road. Mm, great point. And, you know, kind of speaking of innovation, you, over the course of your career, you've kind of seen it from all angles, you know, from private sector, public sector, you know, working for the government and also consulting. Uh, how have you kind of seen, you know, cyber security transform over the years? And, you know, where do you kind of see it going in the next five or 10 years? Yeah, great question. It, it has become so much more important these days, so much more visible um, these days to people, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, policy leaders, uh, leaders uh, you know, politicians. Um, you know, leaders overall. I think this issue has become one where, you know, years ago, it was one of a set of challenges, right? You know, you had, you know, the cybersecurity challenge, you had the physical challenge, you had the, now people have appropriately integrated it into, you know, uh, all of the things that they deal with. Uh, because, you know, when you talk about physical, physical security, there's a cybersecurity aspect to it. Uh, when you're talking about, uh, you know, emergency, you know, prep, there is a cybersecurity aspect to it. And so instead of it being one of several things, it's been, again, appropriately baked into everything. And so that's really changed. I think the importance of identifying uh, people who can actually do the job, right, that has changed as well. I know when I was at the, in government at the White House, as well as Department of Homeland Security, um, the Intel community got special, and I know Department of Homeland Security in particular, uh, got special consideration in terms of hiring, right? Instead of going through the normal bureaucracy, uh, they were able to offer, you know, better incentives in terms of pay uh, to cybersecurity, uh, um, you know, experts. Uh, because, of course, you're competing with the private sector and you want to get uh, great folks in government as well. And so for Congress to say, yeah, you need that hiring authority to do that, I think this speaks volume of the fact that people understand this is a national security issue and we, need, we can't tackle it in a way that we've done other things in the past. And so uh, what I've seen change in the last several years is it's just become so much more visible, uh, so much more important to, uh, to people outside of the technology uh, area. Where's it going to go? 
I think it's just going to do more of that, right? It's going to become even more important as, again, we start to connect more things to the network. I mean, now, you know, obviously we're talking about autonomous cars, smart homes, uh, you know, smart cities. Uh, we're talking about things that years ago we only thought as being as sort of a dream. Now they're not a possibility. They're probabilities that will happen. And, and so people... We're going to need those experts to help protect those systems, protect those networks. And so what we've seen in the last several years in terms of more visibility, more importance, we're definitely going to see that in the next several years. It's going to become much more visible and much more important. Thank you, Rick, for that very insightful interview. No problem. It was really fun talking with Kelvin. You know, he's super passionate about what he's doing. So that was, that was a fun one. And people will be able to find that full interview on our blog. Okay, we've come to the end of our podcast. And we like to end with some predictions. And we kind of alluded to them during the beginning. Uh, but just bringing it full circle, Rick, what are your thoughts about predictions as we move forward in 2020? Yeah, as we mentioned, and your friend mentioned, um, there is, uh, there is precedent that when there is warmer weather, that, um, viruses do worse, they have a hard time spreading. So prediction is that the coronavirus, uh, will die down as the weather warms up and we, you know, start getting into, um, May and June. So we'll see right now that even where the virus is spreading, it's in a lot of these colder climates and areas. Um, but you know, infectious disease experts say that the factors that cause other viruses to retreat during the summer months, and there's a reason why flu season is during the winter, um, it could also have the same effect with the coronavirus. So, you know, common cold is most prevalent in the winter and spring and the flu also fall and winter. So um, there is hopefully some end in sight just naturally when the weather warms up that we'll see the spread of the coronavirus um, start to end. Well, that's great. You know, a little bit of uh, sunshine to look forward to. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rick, for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Hypocritical Podcast. Uh, be sure to subscribe and follow us uh, wherever podcasts are streamed. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. 